something that ought to be of concern to all of us, uh, and that is the preservation of our heritage. It ought to be something that we are all concerned about. Someone said these words that there is always something in the heritage of a generation that is being threatened, which is too precious to lose. He went on to say that we are always one generation away from the extinguishing of heritage. As a nation, we have a very profound heritage. We celebrate that. We celebrated it yesterday and throughout the 4th of July week. There is a heritage that is the embodiment of what we believe, and this has been forged out. It has been fought for by enlightened men at great sacrifice. We have a constitution and a bill of rights that articulate the philosophy of government that we have embraced. This has been passed on from generation to generation because we regard this worthy of preservation. And if not for the shedding of blood, if not for men and women who at great sacrifice and putting their lives in great danger had not valued our heritage sufficiently, there's no telling where our country would be today because from generation to generation there has always been a minority, at least a minority, of men and women who deemed our heritage valuable enough to fight for and valuable enough to pay a price for. And the success of our nation depends on the preservation of our heritage. As a fellowship of churches, we have a heritage. Can you say amen? That heritage is born of biblical foundations and standards. It is constructed with the various building blocks that have contributed to making us what we are. Every one of us seated here this morning is a beneficiary of a heritage that has been established and a heritage that has been fought for and preserved at great expense and at great sacrifice. And you and I are seated here tonight uh, as beneficiaries uh, of something precious uh, and valuable uh, that is worth uh, fighting for uh, and worth uh, preserving. We are an evangelizing, soul-winning, discipleship-making, and church-planting fellowship. Can you say amen? That is what we are. This is the heritage that you and I have embraced, that has been given to us, and that we have a godly duty to preserve and keep it from being tampered with and interfered with and polluted. It is worth preserving. And we can never stop fighting to preserve the heritage that defines us. In the book of Jude, he writes these words and says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. 
He's talking about this very thing, that there is a preserving effort that must be exercised. He's saying, we have delivered something to you, and now what has been delivered, we must fight to maintain. That word literally means contender, and it literally means to struggle for. In other words, the things that have been handed to us are not necessarily intrinsically permanent, but they have to be fought for because there is always forces at work that want to break the force and the power and the thrust of heritage. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote and said, follow me and follow my manner of life. There was a heritage that was transmitted from the Word of God into the heart of the Apostle Paul and through the Apostle Paul into the churches. And Paul said, in order to preserve that heritage, you need to follow me and you need to exemplify the manner of life that I have demonstrated. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he writes again and says, Stand fast and hold the traditions that have been taught, whether by word or by letter. And so we have a very necessary effort that needs to be exhibited on a continual basis because there's always the risk of loss if you and I don't labor to preserve our heritage. I want to read from 1 Kings chapter 21. This story uh, exemplifies uh, and gives us a great analogy of what I want to preach on. I'm going to jump around uh, throughout the chapter, uh, but I want to use uh, the entire discourse of this story, and so you can keep your Bibles open as we refer to it. In verse uh, 1 of 1 Kings 21, And it came to pass, uh, after these things, that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, uh, which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And so Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, uh, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, uh, or if it seems good to you, uh, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. And so Ahab went into his house uh, sullen and displeased because of the word, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food. Let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote, letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and to the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him that he may die. Then skip down to verse 15 with me, please. 
And it came to pass that when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel who lives in Samaria, uh, there he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. Verse 19, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? Verse 21, behold, I will bring calamity upon you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And then uh, skip down to verse 27. And so it was when Ahab heard these words uh, that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body uh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Uh, because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring calamity in his days. Uh, but in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity uh, upon his house. I want to talk to you first of all this morning about the danger that we all face. There is something that must be taken seriously, and this is obviously articulated in the story that we are reading this morning. Ahab approaches Naboth. King Ahab approaches Naboth, uh, which uh, what appears to be uh, not an unreasonable deal. He is not issuing a decree. Uh, he is not uh, forcing his hand. Uh, he is simply making an offer. And initially, uh, he seems somewhat willing, although reluctantly willing, uh, to abide uh, by the decision that Naboth had made. The king wants a vineyard uh, so that he can add it uh, to his personal uh, estate. This doesn't seem wrong or harmful, and as a matter of fact, on the surface, uh, there is the appearance uh, that Naboth could greatly advantage himself uh, by cutting this deal. And so uh, uh, the Bible goes on to articulate what had taken place. Naboth uh, could uh, curry favor with the king. He has offered something better. The Bible says that uh, in Ahab's uh, effort to procure this uh, uh, vineyard, uh, he offers Naboth a vineyard better than it uh, or its worth uh, in money. And so there is advantage for Naboth. Uh, there is a seeming uh, innocence uh, and a no harm uh, that is apparent, uh, and all seems reasonable, uh, and all seems well-intentioned, uh, and in light of this, uh, Naboth's response uh, seems abrupt, uh, and it seems very harsh. As a matter of fact, Matthew Henry uh, uh, made the comment in reading about this uh, that Naboth uh, was very rude uh, in the cultural uh, uh, setting uh, to refer or to respond to the king's uh, 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 request uh, in the manner that he did. Naboth does not enter into a bargaining session. Uh, there are no questions that he asks uh, King Ahab. Uh, there is no negotiation. Uh, there is only a very curt uh, one-sentence uh, refusal. Uh, he says, The Lord forbid uh, that I should give the inheritance uh, of my father to you. This indicates two things. Number one, it indicates uh, that the offer of Ahab uh, was abhorrent uh, to Naboth. There was something about it that repulsed him. 
There was something about it uh, that brought this immediate rejection uh, and this immediate refusal. Uh, he did not entertain it. Uh, and though it seems innocent, uh, though it has no apparent evil uh, woven into it, uh, Naboth saw something seriously wrong with it. Uh, it was abhorrent to him. Uh, it was repulsive to him. Uh, and he said, the Lord forbid. The second thing that it shows us is that Naboth had a very strong sentiment towards and concerning heritage. In the book of Leviticus, the word of the Lord forbids the breaking up of an estate because it was understood that this land was given to them by God and it was given to them by God for their well-being and to minister and to meet their needs and it was to be treated not as a possession but as a heritage passed on from one generation to the next and if under duress pieces of land did have to be be sold in a case of emergency there was the contingency that it could always be redeemed and then in the year of jubilee it was automatically returned because there was a sacredness regarding the heritage and Naboth is very much connected with this therefore he's able to make a very swift judgment about Ahab's offer to the ignorant it seems innocent to the uneducated it appears to be something that could advance uh, Naboth, uh, but he immediately recognizes uh, that uh, this is uh, abhorrent uh, and this is repulsive because Ahab wants to take the heritage, change its use and function, and make it into a personal possession. He has no appreciation for past heritage, no reverence for it. It was of no concern to him. He viewed this land only in terms of how it could advance him, how it could bless him, how it could minister to him, and how it could prosper his own life. The heritage did not mean anything to him, and he was willing to change the use of something that God has said is sacred. The faithful steward, Naboth, wants to preserve the heritage. Ahab, who is driven by self-interest, wants it for himself. And so this is the setting of the stage for the uh, ending uh, of this uh, deal and the tragedy that began to transpire, uh, that a conflict uh, erupted, demonic forces began to go to work, uh, and uh, this is uh, the classic case uh, that we have here in the story uh, of what we have played out culturally, uh, what we have played out uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, is that there are those who seek to preserve, uh, there are those who take strong stands relative to the preservation of what we are. And there are others who see no problem in altering and changing the use and making it a personal possession. See, this is quite profound because it represents a danger that we are all susceptible to that threatens the longevity and the survival of our 
fellowship. We are one generation away uh, from extinction. Uh, that's why Naboth understood this. Uh, and this is why his curt refusal, uh, his non-negotiative approach uh, to Ahab's appeal, uh, because he understands that though uh, this piece of land uh, has been in his family uh, and under the stewardship uh, of the children of Israel for hundreds of years, uh, all it would take uh, was one deft move by Ahab uh, to completely change and alter the use uh, and the inheritance uh, could never then be recaptured. The preserving of our heritage this morning requires the guarding of our hearts. It is the spirit and it is the attitude that we have towards it. That's why our country today, against all odds, is still intact. Can you say amen? Because there has been a heart that has been right, in a sense, towards what we are, towards our heritage. And the hearts of the rank-and-file citizenship of our nation have looked at our heritage and said, I deem this worthy. I deem this valuable enough to sacrifice my own life and to resist anyone that would try to change or alter or allow self-interest to prevail. There are several things that we're vulnerable to here that put heritage at risk. One of them is the tendency that we have to slackness because the maintaining of a heritage requires a diligent vigilance. And if you and I are not very careful, we will incrementally lose what we are. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a result of one fail swoop of the enemy coming down and taking all that we have. But slowly over a process of time, we begin to give a little bit here. And this is what the cry is of many people today, is that because of the liberal agenda, we are incrementally giving away our freedom. Nobody is recognizing or realizing what is transpiring. More and more governmental control, less and less personal freedoms. We're not doing it all at once. We're doing it slow because we have a tendency to towards slackness and an aversion to the diligence and the continual diligence that is required in order to maintain heritage. See, to Naboth, the stewardship of this vineyard was a lifelong commitment. He was always switched on. He understood that uh, I have to be very careful, I have to guard, I have to protect, I have to be vigilant. And whenever uh, circumstances would arise that would buffet and threaten that heritage, he was able to rebuff them because he's watching it. He's very knowledgeable about the standards and the Word of God and the government of this land and his position. And so he's able to rebuff and keep at bay anything that would violate and anything that would and he is not susceptible to the slow deterioration that very often comes because we can begin to be slack and non-appreciative of all that you and I are and all that you and I are a part of. He never lost his edge when it came to the valuing of his heritage. That is why he had such a swift and immediate and a non-negotiative 
responsive to Ahab's. He immediately recognized what it is. I'm sure he had to, uh, perhaps could have had some friends that might have said, Naboth, what's the big deal here? You were very rude to the king. You can't treat him that way. But Naboth was governed by a higher order. He was governed something that is beyond this world. He is governed by a godly heritage that had been imposed upon him. And he was able to recognize any threat because he never lost his edge and he was in a lifelong commitment to preserve heritage. And he was still functioning with the same set of standards that he began with. I remember when the Brownsville, and I know this will annoy some here, but that's okay. When the Brownsville fiasco began to boil in our fellowship, I think it was around uh, a March or April a few years ago, and I happened to have Pastor Mitchell in town for a crusade. I'd heard about Brownsville. I'd heard that some people had gone to visit. It seemed very innocent, a move of God. Praise the Lord. But I was quite shocked and quite taken aback at Pastor Mitchell's adamant stance against Brownsville, sending faxes, letters. I remember probably within three minutes of getting home into his office, he faxed me a a uh, number of articles and uh, various kinds of material. Uh, and uh, very many people, I was quite taken aback by that. Uh, I didn't resist, but I didn't understand why the, 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 the harsh uh, edge, why the response. Uh, uh, but I came to understand that here's a man that probably cares and quite possibly cares more about heritage than you and I do. Can you say amen? And without batting an eye... He's able to recognize something uh, that if we open the doors to it in our fellowship, uh, it is a threat uh, to the heritage uh, that you and I are part of. Uh, and I'm here to say this morning uh, that I appreciate uh, Pastor Mitchell's stance uh, and I appreciate his response. Uh, and time has proven uh, that he took the right stand. I wonder if in 1980, that's 20 years ago, if you could have in 1980 fast-forwarded to right now and faced yourself off. What you were in 1980 and what you have become, if you could have stood face to face and, and uh, I wonder how many uh, would in that setting be absolutely abhorred uh, at the drumbeat, uh, at the words that were being spoken, uh, at your spirit and your attitude, uh, and, uh, and without all the dynamics of uh, uh, the 20 years, if you just suddenly were put in that position uh, and had to begin to listen yourself uh, as what you had become, uh, I wonder how many of you would have run uh, from that person that you would have become uh, screaming and pulling your hair out and saying, whatever happened to me? See, if we're not careful, we slowly, sl subtly change. Naboth was unwilling to let go of his heritage. And sometimes time and familiarity can have a profound effect on our sense of appreciation for what we are. The 
Other area where we are in danger is that we have a tendency to adapt to the prevailing winds. Because in our text, uh, there is the possibility uh, that if he trades off inheritance or heritage, uh, he can get some kind of present advantage. And the same thing can happen to us. When we were uh, young pastors and young disciples, uh, we reveled uh, in the radical nature uh, of what our fellowship was uh, and the differences and the distinctives uh, of what we were becoming. Uh, but uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, the radical uh, 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 positions uh, of the early years, a little bit later on, they become a disadvantage uh, and we become no longer willing uh, to bear the reproach as our pastor was preaching a few moments ago. Uh, we become no, no longer willing to bear the reproach of what we are as a fellowship and the heritage that we have as a fellowship and as a group of churches. And so we begin willing to begin to trade those off because of an advantage that we see. In Jeremiah 2, 7, the Bible says, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. This, I think, describes the reasoned compromise. It would been very easy uh, for Naboth uh, to say to Ahab, Wow, this is not a bad deal. Uh, I can get another vineyard uh, and just use that uh, for the same thing I was using this. Uh, there's all kinds of room uh, here for negotiation. Uh, there's all kinds of room uh, here uh, for compromise. Uh, and here we have the children of Israel described in Jeremiah 2. Uh, the Bible says they went into the land uh, with the Word of God, with standards. Uh, but as they went in and they actually began to occupy uh, the Bible said there was a subtle change in transformation uh, and they began to make compromises uh, regarding uh, the definition uh, of what God said they were to be the other thing that can happen is that we simply do not properly value and appreciate all that we are listen to this verse in Ecclesiastes 2.21 for there is a man whose labor is with wisdom knowledge and skill Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Naboth is not about to put this piece of land in the hands of Ahab. This is a piece of land that for generations now, and now under Naboth's care, men have labored, men have fought to preserve, men have used it for what God intended it to be used for. And so Naboth is not about to turn this over to a man who is driven by self-interest. This man, King Ahab, describes this garden as a vegetable garden. He wants to use it for his own selfish benefit and has no compulsion. Uh, to uh, preserve uh, heritage. Uh, and uh, there are people always that risk their heritage because they think of nothing, of altering it for selfish purpose. They lose appreciation and value for what we are and what we have. And they fail to appreciate, perhaps more importantly, the price that has been paid. There has been a price paid. Can you say amen? 
Men have gone before us uh, at great risk and peril to their reputation, uh, to their livelihoods, uh, and they have established uh, precedents and standards and structure uh, that defines our fellowship, uh, and uh, there needs to be a great valuing uh, and a great appreciation for this. Uh, and this is the picture we have of Naboth, uh, and it was his valuing uh, of the heritage uh, that facilitated uh, the longevity, at least up until that point. I want to talk to you secondly about the components of our heritage. It's very obvious by this story, if you read between the lines, that we're not talking here simply about a piece of land. This is not just a piece of real estate that somebody buys and hopes to sell at some future time or maybe retire upon. And the fact that this is not just a piece of land and there are much higher stakes uh, is evidenced by, first of all, Naboth's response, uh, and then secondly, uh, by what Ahab and Jezebel are willing to do in order to procure it. Not just about a piece of land. We read about the evil plot in verse 8. She wrote in these letters saying, Proclaim a fast, verse 9 and 10 rather, and seat Naboth high uh, of honor among the people and seat two men scoundrels before him to bear witness against him. You have blasphemed God and the king, then take him out and stone him so that he may die. And so it's very evident by the, uh, uh, the uh, shifting here of Naboth, uh, of, of uh, uh, Ahab rather, uh, and the uh, 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 suggestion of Jezebel that there is a demonic... Uh, component involved uh, in this story. Uh, initially, uh, uh, Ahab uh, is simply feeling sorry for himself uh, and is probably willing to accept uh, the decision of uh, Naboth. Uh, but Jezebel comes on, uh, amen, filled with hellish inspiration, uh, and she begins to hatch a plot uh, that they were able uh, to carry out uh, because, my friend, uh, the demonic uh, has targeted heritage uh, and the stakes uh, are very high. Can you say amen? If the devil uh, is able to pollute our heritage, uh, if uh, he is able to assault uh, and simply change what we are uh, and shift us in another direction, uh, I want you to know uh, that there are needs that are going to be unmet. Uh, there is uh, an element of facility uh, for the world's need uh, that is traveling through our fellowship, uh, born of our heritage. Uh, and if that is interfered with, uh, the nurturing of the nations of the world uh, could very well stop. There's a lot at stake here. And so the devil begins to move. And the interesting thing about this story is that since Ahab is the king, why didn't he just kill Naboth? Why does he have to discredit him first? He has to discredit him first uh, so that he can justify himself. Naboth uh, has a good reputation. Uh, he is someone who uh, no doubt is well-liked uh, and well-respected. Uh, and so if Ahab is going to move in and take possession uh, and redefine the heritage uh, before he can actually silence Naboth uh, and take possession, uh, he first of all has to discredit him in order to justify his actions. Most of you... Uh, remember and are still aware because I think there's still talk in the news about it of uh, uh, the Travelgate uh, uh, fiasco that took place and what this uh, is about uh, is that a man by the name of Billy Dale uh, ran the travel office for the White House uh, this is a very uh, high pressure job uh, he's responsible in the travel office with several employees uh, he's responsible for coordinating uh, all the presidential travels and the entourage uh, the press uh, 
uh, uh, and uh, this man, Billy Dale, had been in this position through four... administrations. Uh, this is an office that runs independent of politics. Uh, there was simply a good man uh, with a good reputation uh, who's been doing a good job. Uh, but uh, something happened in 1992, uh, and that is that King Ahab got elected. And so King Ahab seized this travel office as a lucrative opportunity for self-advancement uh, to put his cronies there. Uh, but he can't simply fire Billy Dale uh, because Billy Dale has reputation uh, and he'll make too many enemies. Uh, and so what President uh, Clinton, uh, uh, President Ahab did rather, is that he began a campaign uh, to tear apart this man's reputation. Uh, they begin to put stories out in the media and they sufficiently discredited him. Uh, so the time uh, came for Bill Clinton to fire him uh, and everybody said, great job. Bill, good job. King Ahab, he took possession of the travel office then and was able to use it for his own purpose. See, the strategy is to silence eventually, but before Naboth can be silenced, he has to be discredited because it's only in that framework uh, that self-interest can be made to look reasonable. It can be made to look good if you can discredit it with the hope of eventually silencing the voices of those that are opposing your plans to change the use of God's heritage. But I want you to know something else, and that is when this dynamic is transpiring, God gets involved. Verse 19, God solicits the aid of His prophet, and says to his prophet, You shall speak to Ahab, thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And then Elijah goes on to pronounce a judgment. But notice the prophecy, or notice the judgment that is being made and how it's begun. He didn't just say, You have murdered. We look at this story and think that Ahab has committed a heinous act of murder and he should be judged for that. No, God didn't stop there. He said, You've murdered and then you've taken possession. And you read, you may have noticed when I was reading the text that that phrase, You have taken possession, is found four or five times in this verse. This was very much on the heart uh, and the mind of God uh, when he began to pronounce the judgment uh, that was meet uh, for the wickedness uh, of Ahab. And the reason why God is so adamant about this and why Naboth, as a matter of fact, was so adamant is because when heritage is lost, once it is gone, something valuable is destroyed and may not be recoverable. And the reason that this is such an inviting target is because... Uh, of the various components of heritage. In other words, in order to take heritage apart, you have to assault something that is very 
powerfully eternal, very useful to God for His purpose and for His agenda. And you and I need to understand as we sit here this morning, we are greatly blessed and we are greatly privileged by the heritage that we are surrounded by and that we are part of. But I want you to know it is a target of our adversary because we can begin to dismantle incrementally the definition of our heritage. He can begin to rob the world of a means of meeting its need. Three components of heritage that I want to reiterate that are not new to us. One of them is that heritage is born of godly standards. In this case, in our story, uh, there is a standard of conduct uh, that was established in the, in the Levitical law regarding the stewardship uh, of property. This became how Naboth conducted himself with this land. He didn't treat it as a possession. He didn't do with it as he willed. But he counted sacred the standard of God's Word that governed the conduct that he was to embody in order to manage and in order to be the steward of this piece of property. You remove the standards and you change the definition. The standards that you uphold define what you are. Ahab, Naboth knew, would jettison the standards. He had no desire to reference off the Word of God. And so he was willing to set the standards aside and establish the standard of self-interest because he had no standards. See, the standards that we have as a fellowship that I mentioned in the introduction, evangelism, Church planting, discipleship, soul winning. These are God-deposited standards that are defined in the Word of God. We're not off on some harebrained social scheme, but our reference point for what we do is the Word of God. And the mark of a true standard is that it is timeless. It is always relevant from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And there have been biblical standards that have traveled through the centuries of church history. We did not invent these. They're not the consequence of a man's genius, but they have simply been passed on by past generations. And our reference point for what we do is the standards that God has established. These standards then, secondly, have to be translated into structure. The standard has been established. Naboth has taken that on board. But it's now his responsibility to take that Levitical law, that standard, and make it work through his life and his stewardship. He is the man. Can you say amen? He's the one that has to interpret the standard, transmit it through his life, and uphold it. And he has to take personal charge. And if it means defying a king, so be it. Because Naboth is driven by the standards. And those standards play out in the structure of conduct that he chose to embody those standards in the framework of. The standard is the biblical precedent. The structure is the framework that we establish to embody those standards. Our fellowship is unique in this regard. Can you say amen? We're not like, we're not the only, but I dare say that we are not like 
other fellowships, uh, other denominations. Uh, we have unique standards uh, that we have chosen to embody. Somebody else may not do what we do, uh, and they can still make it to heaven. That's okay. Uh, that's not what we're doing. Uh, we have unique standards, uh, and those unique standards that originate in the Word of God play out in a structure uh, that has been established, uh, a structure uh, that involves uh, uh, various uh, uh, things that have been established in our fellowship uh, that we don't even think about anymore. We think uh, that our fellowship is normal uh, and that everybody's doing what we're doing. But I want you to know that's not the case. I've never met another uh, fellowship or religious organization uh, that conducts three services a week uh, and preaches uh, that people ought to be in every single service. You know, here's the simple thing. We sit here. Yeah, that's the way we are. No, that uh, uh, the establishing of that, uh, amen, was a work of genius. Uh, and you and I this morning, uh, as we sit here, uh, are the beneficiaries of that. Uh, because of that standard, uh, the purposes of God have been accelerated in our lives. The more you hear preaching, uh, the more developed you can become. Uh, and so you and I uh, are seated here this morning, uh, and we are beneficiaries uh, of some of the structure uh, and uh, the things that have been established established into the fabric of our fellowship. It was quite radical. I remember when Pastor Mitchell began to bring the issue of television into the fellowship and we began to make a stand that Bible study leaders, pastors, and others who function in public ministry are not going to have, not going to own, not going to borrow, not going to rent, not going to fornicate in front of a television. And so we sit here this morning having benefited from that standard. I'm glad I couldn't handle having a television because I would watch it and I, I would probably be the sort of person that would buy an inch bigger screen every year and watch it and be fed and ruined. And so we sit here having benefited uh, from that uh, particular standard. Uh, but it's so uh, so very wrong for you to not uh, impose that. Why would you not want your people uh, in your church and your leaders uh, to benefit from what you have benefited from? Oh, I know it's too hard to impose that. No, you just have to do it. You have to bear the reproach uh, and you have to pay the price. The third component of heritage is that it has to be preserved through the establishing and the protecting and the passing on of a pattern. Do you remember that word pattern? Say it with me. We have a pattern. We used to preach about it. I remember coming to conferences uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, every sermon was pattern, pattern, pattern. Uh, I'm going to preach about the pattern. I'm going to talk to you about the pattern. This is the pattern. And then we turn to mocking the pattern and then silence about it. We better be because we do have a pattern. That means a blueprint and a template and a template. The pattern is the means of demonstrating how to express godly standards and structure that ensures that what we're building is going to come out right. If you are going to build in this fellowship, we have a pattern. Can you say amen? Whenever you see a job site, a construction enterprise, every once in a while, if you drive by, you'll see a man walking around with a hard hat and he'll have a set of rolled up papers under his arms. That man is probably the foreman and under his arm he has the pattern because the workers that are there and others that are there, they're going to want to take shortcuts. They're going to want to cheapen the product. But it is up to the foreman to lay out the pattern and say, Thus saith the Lord. 
And he has every right to do that. Uh-oh, here comes the foreman. I've heard some people say that about their pastor. I want to talk to you finally about the preserving of our heritage. Another story that I think is relative to this is the parable of the wicked um, husbandman. Matthew 21. The husbandman enters into an agreement with the landowner. The landowner, the Bible says, buys a piece of land, organizes it for a harvest of crops, uh, and then he hires someone to work on it, uh, and then he goes into a far country. And so as this man begins to work uh, on this uh, field uh, with his, uh, 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 with his uh, staff and, and uh, uh, various people, uh, they begin to bear incredible fruit. They begin to be very successful. Uh, and so the time comes uh, when from the far country the landlord sends his emissaries uh, to collect uh, the fruitfulness of the field. And the Bible says uh, that these uh, that he has leased to uh, kill them. He stones one, killed one, and beat up another. He took care of them. The landlord hears about this, says, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, and he sends more. And the Bible says they kill and they beat up those. And then finally he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely uh, they're not going to harm my son. But as soon as the son shows up, uh, this was their greatest threat because uh, the heritage of the land fell to him. And they said, let's kill him. And the Bible says they took out the son and they killed him. And what we see transpiring here is that these men, as they begin to labor in a field, they did not originate with them. They were given uh, it to, to labor in. It should have been good enough at that. But the Bible says here that a deviation began to take place. And that deviation that took place is a deviation from stewardship, from a land that is not ours. We're just here to benefit the landlord and to take a portion for our own well-being. It shifted from that to one who wanted to possess. And then the landowner became viewed as an intruder and a threat and they were unmoved by his demands. In fact, the landowner became the enemy and they thought nothing of treating him harshly because now he's a threat to self-interest. There's two important factors that I want to close with this morning. To the preserving of heritage and they both have to do with the keeping of your heart right. This has to do, first of all, with your position. We are stewards of a heritage that did not originate with us. We are stewards of a heritage that did not originate with us. We are stewards of a heritage that did not originate with us. I'm going to say it until we get a hearty amen. We are stewards of a heritage that did not originate with us. We are not owners of our churches. We are not owners of our ministries. These have been handed to us by God. They have been passed through a man who saw fit to to elevate, to advance, and to put in our hands things uh, that we could never have had on our own. We do not own it, and we cannot act as though we do. And the second dynamic here is that you have to keep your heart right with the landowner. This is an issue of headship, and it is an issue of lordship. In the case of Ahab and the wicked husbandman, the ones who had charge over heritage became disposable because the ones with charge over heritage were interfering with self-interest. 
And so, if self-interest is going to be justified, these have to be disposed of. But in doing so, they threatened the means that God had established for the meeting of need. Now look at verse 21 with me. I'm going to have to fly through this very quickly. Got to get the right page first. God speaks to Ahab and says, I'll bring calamity upon you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And so God begins to pronounce a judgment over Ahab. And he says, first of all, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. I am going to set upon you a deteriorative force that is not going to allow you to enjoy life. You're not going to have peace of mind and confusion and chaos chaos are going to surround you. Secondly, he says, I will take away your posterity. You are not going to be allowed. God will see to it. You may kill Naboth, but you're not going to allow be allowed by God Himself uh, to usurp uh, your selfish agenda over God's heritage. Uh, God Himself will stand in your way and He will oppose you. Uh, You will not have a posterity uh, if you are willing to jettison God's heritage uh, and change its use uh, so that it satisfies self-interest. He says you'll be cut off from every male. What does that mean? Well, to me, the King's future is in his ability to influence the men that are under him. And so God says, I'm going to take away your ability to do that. You are not going to have credibility. You're not going to have a connection. And you're not going to have the ability to influence and to touch these men's lives. The good news for Ahab is that he repented. So it was when Ahab heard these words uh, that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted uh, and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came uh, to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself uh, before me because he has humbled himself before me. uh, I will not bring the calamity uh, in his days. Uh, And so here we have Ahab. uh, He is touched by God. Uh, The words of the prophet have a cutting edge uh, and he comes to repentance uh, and his repentance is public. It's not something done in a closet or done behind closed doors. But the Bible says he lay in sackcloth and ashes and he went about mourning acknowledging the wickedness. And God was moved enough about this to pronounce a breaking of that judgment. And God said because he has humbled himself and gone on public record regarding his wrongdoing that I will lift the judgment. But one thing that God didn't do and perhaps couldn't do is he couldn't stop uh, the outflow uh, of what Ahab had done uh, for the next generation. He had influenced. He had touched another generation uh, with his uh, uh, destroying of heritage. uh, And because of that, uh, this played out uh, in a generation beyond him. uh, And this very often is what rebellion does. uh, When a man rebels uh, and begins to speak against headship, uh, he may very well be able to repent. uh, But your repentance uh, doesn't stop the spin out uh, in what you have caused and the damage in other people's lives. uh, And God said uh, that is going to visit uh, the next uh, generation. See, the hope for our sons is the preservation of our heritage. Can you say amen? The passing on of the faith that has been once delivered. Our rebellion 
against our heritage, our disrespect for what we are is deadly to our sons. We may be able to survive it ourselves, but our sons will not. And as you and I are gathered here, we have a sacred charge to labor at preserving the heritage that is ours. I've gone one and a half minutes over. I apologize. The Lord bless you. Brother Artie's coming.